Welcome to the Why on Earth Community Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron William Perry, and today we're visiting with biologist and author David George Haskell. Hey, David. Hi, Aaron. It's great to be with you again uh, in, in a remote ether here rather than in person, but it's, it's always good to connect. Yeah, likewise. And uh, yeah, it's uh, we, we recorded an episode very early on for our podcast series right in uh, downtown Boulder along the creek there next to some beautiful cottonwoods with some ducks in the background. So yeah, now we're taking advantage of some of the communication technology to do this remotely. Great. Well, we can just imagine the river running next to us. I, I love that conversation down by the river because the sounds of the river and the ducks and people hanging out, it was, it was a good space. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm really excited to talk about your new book and uh, share with our audience some of the real treasures that you've got in there. Thanks. David George Haskell is a biologist whose work integrates scientific, literary, and contemplative studies of the natural world. He is a professor of biology and environmental studies at Sewanee, the University of the South, and is a Guggenheim Fellow. Winner of the 2012 National Outdoor Book Award for Nat Natural History Literature and the 2013 Reed Environmental Writing Award, Dr. Haskell delivers a unique perspective grounded in modern biological and ecological science and enriched by a more prosaic and timeless cultural ethos of connection and biophilia. His 2017 book, The Song of Trees, won the John Burroughs Medal for Distinguished Natural History Writing and was named one of the best science books of 2017 by Public Radio International's Science Friday and was also selected by Forbes.com as one of the 10 Best Environment, Climate, Science, and Conservation Books of 2017. His 2012 book, The Forest Unseen, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize and the PENEO -E Wilson Literary Science Writing Award. He uh, told me before we started the recording that uh, although he did his undergrad at the University of Oxford and uh, PhD at Cornell University, he got his schooling in the woods. And uh, David, your latest book, which we're talking about today, is Sounds Wild and Broken, Sonic Marvels, Evolution's Creativity, and the Crisis of Sensory Extinction. And uh, clearly, you've, you've been spending even more time in a number of different natural and, and maybe not so natural settings or more human settings, uh, putting this book together. And uh, it's been a, a real joy to read it and uh, learn from it. And, and I guess I want to dive right in and ask you, um, what do you mean by the crisis of sensory extinction? Yeah, well, th thank you, Aaron, for having me on. It's, it's a real pleasure to, to be in conversation with you. I'm looking forward to our, our chat. Yes, and, and you know, so that's the, the third part of the, the, the subtitle of the book. And uh, I think we live in a time where we have sonic marvels beauty part of the, my goal with the book is to is to open people's ears up to the to the to the stories of of uh, sonic communication the riches of sound on our planet and also to highlight some of the ways in which uh we i think we're in a, we're in a sensory crisis particularly as it relates to sound part of that is a, a paradoxical sort of duality is that we're in a time of great silencing so through our 
over extraction uh, and uh, through climate change, through over harvesting, through habitat destruction, many ecosystems are losing their sensory sonic diversity. Uh, where, where once there were thousands of voices singing out, now those voices are dwindling, either being entirely lost or, or uh, present at much, much lower, much less beautiful levels. On the other hand, we, we're in this sort of crisis of like too much noise uh, around human industry, human traffic, where we are pumping, up, pumping out so much sound, mostly through our machines. I mean, the problem is not human voices. The problem is... But, you know, tapping fossil fuels and other sources is a great big source of energy. We can pump out so much sound that it smothers the voices and the songs of, of other beings. So you've got silencing in some place, like too much just noise in others. And then wrapped all around that is, is a problem particular to us. And that is inattention. And I think that's part of the, what I think of as the crisis is if we as the most powerful species on the planet, some microbes might argue with that particular <laughs> arrogant statement, but no doubt humans are having, we're, we're nearly at 8 billion of us and our appetites keep increasing. And uh, if, if we stop listening to the voices of our neighbors, of our non-human neighbors, of, of our kin, of, of our brother, sister, cousins, the trees and the birds and, and the living rivers. If we stop listening, how can we possibly do a good job of, of being good kin and being good neighbors? And so part of, part of the intent of the book is to, is to say, let's go out and listen and see what we can learn from that. Some of what we learn will be re full of renewal and joy and all sorts of uh, uh, amazing connection. And some of it will be heartbreaking, but that, that, uh, connection is necessary for for figuring out what should we do, how should we live our lives, what is the uh, what is the ground for right action. Yeah, I think I'm implicit in in your writings and in the conversations that we've shared together is, I think, a call for a lot more immersion in and connection to what we would call nature, right? And, and there's this interesting discourse about what is nature, what isn't nature, but um, the, the natural, non-human, non-built environment, non-industrial world. And I'm, I'm really curious, because this obviously has informed your scholarship, your research, and your writing to, to such a profound degree. What What is that like for you, that practice of connecting with nature? And I, I know you've lived in a number of different places and have traveled to a number of different places. Um, how has that part of your life and practice evolved over time? Yeah. And so, you know, my, my life in many ways is unrooted, right? So I was born on one continent. I live on another. Um, I've moved house, you know, a dozen times um, for, for various reasons. And, 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 and yet I think that's not an uncommon thing in a way. It's just like an allegory for like a whole, um, what humans have done, whether or not we stay in one place for our whole lives or not. And that is a potential disconnection from the stories of home. And perhaps it's because I have moved and don't live in my uh, place of origin. I, I think it's really important to get out there and literally to listen and, and some particularly transformative experiences for me were one going out to the woods in Tennessee, where I, I live for, for more than 20 years and I still teach in Tennessee. Uh, 
And so like one little patch of forest, just one square meter of forest. And I've returned to that now over many years, uh, you know, 15 years, just to sit and shut up for a change and pay attention. Just like, what is the light doing today? What are the birds saying? And like, why can't I understand what they're saying still after so many years of listening? And, and you know, what's, what's happening with the trees? And, you know, I don't have, the point is I don't have an agenda there. My only agenda is to, is to try and have a practice of showing up and actually paying attention with all of my senses. And, and I, I literally do a, what I think of a, a sensory check-in. It's like, okay, remember to, to get your hands on the soil. Open, listen with your ears, pay attention, smell things, get down, get the nose down on, on the ground and see what the, the smells of the soil have to tell us today. So all of those, and so it's a, in a way, a very, very simple practice to show up and go through the senses, including the senses that we don't really have names for, like the sense of, you know, when you touch a pine needle or a leaf, you get a sense from the muscles in your body of how flexible it is how dry and brittle, uh, you know, and that's not, so we've got dozens and dozens of different senses. Our fingertips have got a you know, dozen different types of nerve receptors in them. So what we call a sense of touch is really like, boom, there's a whole lot of stuff going on with just touch. Same thing with sound. Like, of course, we, we hear through our inner ears, or at least m many of us do. And of course, that hearing ability dwindles as we age. And, and we all have different hearing abilities based on how, the structure of our inner ear and what, what capabilities we're born with. But we also hear through our fingertips, through the soles of our feet, for low frequency sounds we hear in our chest. So listening to sound is also a, a, an experience that wraps up lots of different parts of the body. So that part patch of words just and the discipline of just showing up and trying to pay attention. And I eventually wrote a book about that, The Forest Unseen. Um, but beyond the book, we're really, and I really mean this quite very seriously is that I learned so much from the woods by doing that, you know, and I thought, and by then I taught biology at a college level for like 15 years and got degrees in biology and ecology. And, and, and of course those degrees are great, wonderful mentors and lots of great stuff to be learned through formal education, but the education of just letting the woods ask you questions. Like what, what, what are these caterpillars and what are they doing? Why are they so bristly and, and how do they affect the trees above us? That sort of stimulus to curiosity in a way was like Forrest giving me a reading list that then, because I like to, just like to read, you know, I'd say most of my reading is in the scientific literature, which of course is quite dry and, and it's in the way it's worded. But the stories inside it are so amazing. You know, people who've devoted like their life to studying the feeding ecology of caterpillars is what that is so cool. And I want to learn from that uh, so that my appreciation of the, of the caterpillars is expanded. Uh, you know, another practice that was really important was doing a similar thing, but in cities. So in Manhattan, in Denver, in, in Boulder, some going back to the same places and listening within the environment that is much more affected, of course, by human presence. And realizing that human sounds, you know, part of the larger sounds of, of, of nature and doesn't mean they're all good uh, or that we shouldn't be thinking carefully about what sounds we do and do not want to make in, in future. But that immersion, and, and I, I was born in, in the city and, and 
grew up in and around, I was born in London, but grew up near Paris. And so being in an urban environment is, is a good chunk of, of my experience growing up. And I, I have not been a, a big fan of the division that many in the sort of ecology environment community draw between nature on one side and cities on the other. I think that sort of abandons cities and so cities become places of great environmental injustice because the attention of a lot of environmental groups has been mostly on wilderness areas and places beyond the city as it should, right? There's some big, big issues there and the wilderness needs defenders, but so too do vulnerable parts of the city where highways, I mean, literally the federal government had a 90% cost share program for putting highways through low income and minority neighborhoods in, in the U S for decades. And th that of course, results in habitat destruction for non-human species, but the main effect is on the quality of life, the physical quality of life, the mental quality of life for people who have to be breathing those traffic fumes and listening to traffic noise. And so returning again and again to open my senses in the cities has renewed my love and appreciation of the marvels of human music and human culture, but also made me realize how these environmental questions are present right in the city, just as much as they are outside of the city. Wow. That, yeah, absolutely. Uh, beautiful. And, and you just uh, wove so many threads together. I want to pick up one of the threads that you spoke to a couple of minutes ago, which is this, this practice, this discipline of sitting in, in the same patch of woods in Tennessee. And it reminds me of this, Japanese uh, tradition of Shinrin-yoku, mm -hmm. which is known as forest bathing. I think we talked about it before, and it's it's literally sit, sitting and staying put um, in one spot for, for many, many hours, as opposed to the sort of triathlete conquering mentality mm -hmm. of hiking as many miles as possible in a given time right. frame or, or what have you. Um, it's not quite as... Uh, acquisitive or uh, conquering in its spirit. It's it's a much softer kind of listening and opening up. And I have found increasingly as a way to uh, deal with potential stress, as a way to get to much greater clarity in whatever thinking and development and planning work uh, mm -hmm. that we're working on with the Y on Earth community, and also especially uh, when writing, um, there, there's something that I'm able to access through that practice that is not nearly as reliably or readily accessed at other points in time or in other situations or environments. Um, and I, I'm really, I'm curious for you too, as a writer, is that, has that been your experience? Is that where you also experience quite a bit of inspiration perhaps? Yes. And yeah, I mean, Shinrin Yoku is, is a good, uh, uh, a good practice to sort of evoke in this okay. context um, because it does, as you point out, draw us into a different mode of being in when we're in the community of life. And what one could do Shinra and Yoku in on a city street with trees down it and so on. I mean, we, you know, the, the vibe, the energy would, would be a, a different thing, of course, than walking it on, you know, in a mountain meadow with, without, you know, other with human buildings and things around. Um, but the key thing is, is the, the, the intention and the attitude that we bring to the practice uh, to 
open our senses to the place to accept whatever it is that's happening around us without uh, judgment, at least not for the moment. And just to be, to be in that place and let, particularly in the woods, let our bodies interpenetrate with the creatures around us. So when we inhale, just be present for the aroma of the soil. Uh, and when we gaze around or listen, just let those, that sensory impression wash into us. And the, the amazing thing is it, it, it changes not only the, the way we're thinking, but it, those molecules from the forest are binding to our blood cells. And so we carry the forest with us when, when, we, when we leave that. So it's a very physical kind of interconnection that's happening. And, and yeah, I mean, in my own work, absolutely going out in the woods is, uh, is often a great way to, to de-stress, but it's also a way to, to connect into other stresses, right? So the, um, when the first really cold nights come in, in the winter, that's a part of the natural cycle of things. And yet, you know that some of the birds who haven't had an easy time of it this year say that, you know, they couldn't feed themselves. Those are the nights that are going to kill them. And so we open to the, to the heartbreak just in the rhythms of life, let alone what humans are doing to, this, <laughs> to the ecology of the world. Uh, and I think it's important to be open to and not create sort of nature as this place of always being happy, happy. It's, it's all peace and, and everything. There is a lot of peace to be gained, very deep peace. But within that peace, uh, there's pain. Uh, as well as joy. And that's, the, of course, the great, the great uh, tension and paradox of all life is unspeakable beauty and inexpressible pain sort of all wrapped up together. And, and, and being out in the woods is, is a way of, of realizing that that tension exists throughout the living world. It takes particular forms in our own lives or in the life of a salamander or a tree. Of course, I, I'm, you know, I'm not trying to project human things out onto them, but to, to draw a parallel of kinship there. And uh, tapping into those stories beyond the human has been, I mean, if I didn't do that, there were, what little value there is in what I write on pieces of paper, I think comes from spending those hours and hours trying to listen to the voices of non-human non beings. And that's, I think my primary goal as a writer is to try to elevate those. And so when I'm gone, it's like, well, I, I told some stories of my sisters and brothers and, 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 and hopefully that honored them. And maybe perhaps it also helped them by drawing those stories in, into human imagination. It's really beautiful. Yeah, and I, I want to show for uh, our audience who are looking at the the video uh, version of our interview that here here is the book that we're speaking about today sounds wild and broken and, it, and it's so compellingly uh laid out i mean it's 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 really a tr i would i would see this as uh as much philosophy as it is ecology biology etc and the way you're weaving together these different themes and topics you know from origins to the flourishing of animal sounds flowers oceans milk evolution's creative powers, sexuality and beauty, human music and belonging, bone, ivory, breath, right? I'm, I'm describing or, or I'm reciting the section titles and certain chapter titles in your book and then listening in community in the deep past and future. Um, they're, they're re you've really woven together 
so much in this work. And uh, one of the things that sticks out when I was reading is this whole uh, cacophonous universe, to sort of misuse the term universe, of sounds going on underwater in, in like a, 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 a saltwater flat in the Chesapeake mm -hmm. Bay area or something. And the, the way you're describing this immense happening with millions and billions of creatures that we're ordinarily maybe just walking or driving by totally oblivious to. And, and this kind of thing repeats itself over and over again across ecologies uh, in water, on land. And I tell us just a bit about this whole thing with the the little shrimp there in the Chesapeake area because it I, I, it really struck me. Yeah, that's I mean the human ear, of course, is adapted to hearing on land, right? I mean, and, and does a, a reasonably good job of that. I mean, my cat uh, can hear way higher frequencies than I can, and so you know all, all species live within a, a their sort of narrow range of of hearing, and um, the human, we live in a sensory multiverse, in other words, multiple perspectives on, on the, the same sort of vibratory energy that's happening in the world. And the sounds underwater, because of the physics of sound, when those sounds like a whale, I mean, you know, like the most famous underwater sound, probably the song of a humpback whale. When the humpback whale is singing, that sound comes up to the surface and then it bounces back down. So, so it's the surface of the ocean is like this big sound reflector. So unless you're like right on top of where that whale is singing, you're not going to hear it if you're above the water. And for a long time, um, certainly Western science thought that the sounds of the, the ocean was silent. I mean, Jacques Cousteau, his first film in the 1950s, the one that, one that sort of put him on the map and won lots of awards, was called Le Monde du Silence, the, the Silent World. Uh, because his imagination was that the ocean was sun. But now we know because we have hydrophones, which are underwater microphones, you drop that hydrophone down in the oceans, particularly in, in, uh, uh, in very rich oceans like coral reefs, or as, as you mentioned, the, the estuaries on the on coasts that are full of nutrients. Wow, it's like crazy amount of sound down there of, of rhythms and textures and things that are totally different than what we're used to on land. So uh, in one passage in the book, I drop a hydrophone down off an island where I work and teach sometimes, St. Catharines Island off the coast of Georgia, big salt marsh area. And from the, from the, to the eye, it looks very uniform, just a bunch of the same species of, of salt marsh grass stretching to the horizon. Drop the hydrophone. There are these little thumping sounds, boom, 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 from, from silver perch fish. There's this sort of bleating, burping sound from the toadfish that are under there. And wrapping all of that are the sounds of the snapping shrimp. And the, it, it sounds like um, when you're frying something in a, in a very hot griddle, like, all that sort of, I don't really eat bacon, but if you, if you put bacon in and, and cook it, that sort of sizzly sound, it's just like that. And uh, that sizzly sound is from hundreds of little shrimp claws. These shrimp are like, at best, an inch long, often smaller than that. And they have a claw that goes snap. And it snaps so fast that it actually causes the, an air pocket to open in the water. And that air pocket like implodes. And as it smashes back down, 
it, it releases actually a flash of light. It's, it's like you can't see it with the naked eye, but it's like a really, really powerful uh, implosion. And then it makes sound. And then the sound of hundreds of these together creates this, to me, it sounds like a silvery cloud of sparkly sounds. And in many warm waters, this is so loud that it actually interferes with navies who are spying on each other. Like the military have lots of, have got lots of microphones down in the ocean and around snapping shrimp, they can't hear what's going on. And in World War II, the U.S. Navy actually parked and hid some of its submarines amid the snapping shrimp beds so that they, they couldn't be found. So, and then, of course, there are marine mammals, dolphins and seals and whales adding their thing. There are thousands of species of fish that we now know make sounds. Extraordinary. Uh, and, and this is stuff that it's really only in the last few decades, and particularly I'd say the last 20 uh, years that people have realized how ubiquitous and important this sound is. There's a study just came out this week from Australia where they found that the little larvae of uh, oysters, so these are microscopic little larvae floating around, and most zoologists would say they can't hear, they don't have ears, but it turns out when you play the sound of a healthy oyster reef, the little larvae are attracted to it and settle there, they can pick it up because their bodies are covered in these tiny little hairs that pick up the sound vibrations. So, and, and still to this day in the literature, you see people say, well, most insects can't hear. That's just nonsense. Most, no, most insects don't hear the way we do. Uh, and some insects have got specialized like eardrums on their legs and things like that, which, which you know, very cool crickets. And, and then other insects don't have them, but every insect has got little, uh, hearing organs in the joints of their legs to pick up vibrations coming up from the ground into their legs. Some of them have at the base of the antennae. I'm, I wish I had some antennae to show you here and point at my head for those listening on, on the podcast here. They got, there are like a dozen different places where insects can pick up sound. And of course, some of those ways of listening only hear like say very low frequency sounds. They don't hear like the human voice would be mostly inaudible to them. But for that species, maybe the human voice is not particularly relevant. What's relevant is the movement of the trees and the little buzzing sounds that other insects make with their legs and make the leaves and the, and the twigs tremble. I remember hooking an accelerometer up to a cottonwood tree in Boulder to record the sounds of the, of the tree movement of, within the tree. The accelerometer picks up sounds inside the twig in the trunk. And I heard these little buzzing sounds. Like, what is that? Like beep, beep. So I sent a sound file to Rex uh, Crocroft, who's a, at the University of Missouri, and I was a world expert on vibrational communication among insects. And he said, yeah, absolutely. That is a little insect making a sound that you can't hear with your ears because the sound is transmitted through the twig, not through the air. We don't know what species it is because we lack a complete inventory of all the sounds of, I mean, like cottonwood trees are pretty common in, in highly populated areas. I mean, so we know the songs of all the birds of North America, but do we know the songs of all the insects? Not at all. So there's below the water and in the twigs of trees and in leaves are all kinds of sounds waiting to be explored and appreciated. Wow. Wait, so I want to ask the, uh, the flash of light that comes from the, is it the snapping shrimp? Yeah. Uh, 
what is what's causing that? How does that even work? I think so. I would need to reread the paper to give a definitive answer on that. But so this this uh, it's through, because there's so much energy released when that little air pocket that is created. So when the when the claw snaps shut, the movement of the claw is so fast that it creates a little air pocket behind it. And then that air pocket almost immediately then collapses again because it's in the water, right? There was no air there before. And then that collapse releases sound energy, but also a teeny weeny little flash of light as well. That's remarkable. So it's, you know, for a, for a shrimp claw that is a fraction of a millimeter. Now, those shrimp use the claw to 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 communicate but also to feed because if you're a little uh invertebrate plankton and you're right in front of that claw you get killed by that impact even if you're not in the claw it's like this sonic shock wave bam so you know they catch their food like this so I'm, I'm you know glad i'm i get to appreciate it as a bigger creature with a hydrophone and not as a teeny weeny little thing floating around yeah. Yeah. Speaking of teeny weeny things, I want to get to the microbiology you're speaking to. But um, before going there, uh, can you tell us, you, you mentioned hairs as part of the ability to hear, which is picking up waves transmitting through various media, right? Um, and and you, you discuss the term cilia in uh, in the book. And uh, in this section, sensory bargains and, and biases, um, you talk also a bit about our ear and how it has developed. Can you just give mm -hmm. us a quick kind of like run through of that uh, uh, physiology and how that might compare and contrast with many of these other creatures that are also picking up waves? Yeah. So when, when we hear when we, things like when we're talking right now, the vibrations in air go through the through little holes on the sides of our head and then get transmitted through some bone tiny little lever bones to a coil inside our heads that's the inner ear and inside that coil is fluid essentially roughly the same composition as seawater and inside that coil are tiny little hairs that get stimulated by the sound waves and amazingly they're arranged like the keys of a piano from like uh, from high to low, and so low frequency sounds stimulate the hairs that are tuned to low frequencies. High frequency sounds stimulate stimulate the hairs that are tuned to higher frequencies, and that then gets each hair then connects to a nerve that shoots a message to the brain. So every time we hear using our inner ears, we're using these tiny little hair cells, and this is a leading cause of of hearing loss. And I have some of this. In, in my ears, and, and we all do as, as we get older, we lose a lot, of, especially the high-frequency sensitive cells, um, just through the aging process, but also if we've listened to too much loud music or had guns shoot off near us without hearing protection, power tools, all these things that can damage out the hairs in our ears. So one amazing thing about those hairs is that essentially those coils in our ears are a direct descendants of the inner ear of fish. If you look inside the head of most fish, they have almost the same structure. It's not coiled in the same way, but it's little sacs and tubes filled with fluid that have hairs in them. And they use this to, to both hear and also to, to figure out how they're moving through fluid. 
Same with us, right? Our sense of balance also comes from the inner ear. So there's this, even though we are in superficially very, very different bodies, underneath it, we're hearing in a very similar way using essentially the same structure. Even more amazing, those hearing sensitive those hearing organs in the legs of insects or in the antennae of insects also have the same hair in them. The little ciliary hairs, cilia is just a biological term for this specialized kind of hair. So the same cellular structure, a little tufty hair sticking out of a cell is used as the foundation of hearing across the animal kingdom. And even in non animal creatures like little uh, um, ciliates and other single-celled creatures that you would find swimming around in ponds and in the ocean. They also have these hairs on them and they use the hairs to feed themselves and to move, but the hairs also pick up motion in the water around them. And so you can think of that as a, as a form of hearing in a single-celled creature. So yes, this, these little hairs seem like a sort of like a pretty obscure little physiological detail. For me, it's like this great example of both the unity of life, that all of the animals are hearing based on the same kind of fundamental cellular structure and life's incredible mind-blowing diversity. Is that the human ear, even though it has the same structure, is hearing very different frequencies and in different ways than the leg of an insect or a little swimming larva of a, of a baby oyster. Uh, so, so this tension between unity and diversity, I think, is, is present throughout life, throughout biology, throughout human cultures, and is part of, the, I think, one of the most beautiful things about being alive is to appreciate that tension and to revel in both, both ends. Absolutely, yeah. You know, I, uh, my mind's running in multiple directions here with some of the other pieces in your, in your book that I want to ask about. Let me ask about this. One of the things you point out is that generally speaking, uh, the frequencies that are used among different species more or less uh, corresponds or correlates with body size. Um, and, and maybe, I don't know if this is limited to mammals or extends beyond mammals, but uh, talk about rabbits and so on. And then there are some aberrations, like with the mm -hmm. elk, uh, for instance. Um, t can you tell us a bit about like what what's driving this body size thing in general, and then yeah. where why are we seeing some of these exceptions? Yeah, and we, I think we have an intuitive understanding of this from like like looking at an orchestra. Like the bass uh, is much larger than the violins, and the violins are bigger than the cellos, which are kind of intermediate. And so, for any vibrating structure, the smaller it is generally the faster it's going to vibrate and that's going to make a high pitched sound, which is why the bass, which has its big long strings and big pieces of wood, it generally makes very, very uh, deep notes unless you really shorten the string on it or do, do something else like that. And the same is true across the animal kingdom, the lowest sounds in the world, you know, elephants and things can make really low frequency sounds, whereas small insects tend to make very high frequency sounds. You know, it's, it's a crude correlation, but it's a correlation nonetheless. It's based on the just physical laws of sound making. And then, of course, as life always does, it produces some little twists and turns, breaks the rules. And the elk in the Rocky Mountains, are, are one I mean, elk, in fact, all over North America, are one example of this. Elk are huge, 
And if based on their body size, they should make, be making really big, deep rumbles. But if you've heard them doing their bugling sound in, in the fall, it's like really high pitched at the frequency that you'd expect a rabbit to be making its sound. So it's like they're making, they make, it's almost like the, the bass in the orchestra is making the sound, not just of the violin, but of like a piccolo or some like super high pitched, pitched instrument, crazy. Um, and actually we don't fully understand how they do that. Somehow they're really shortening and tightening their vocal folds uh, and in fact, there've been some physiological studies on people who go elk hunting and then they donate the larynx of the, the elk to, for people to study it in, in the lab. And it's still a bit of a mystery how they pull that off. Now, also a mystery is why they do that. Um, and there are two not mutually exclusive reasons. One is it could be a sexual selection thing. Right. So the, the, the elk are showing off to one another and maybe it's sort of like a peacock's tail of the throat. You know, if I'm really strong and don't have many parasites, I can make this high frequency sound in a way that a weaker elk cannot. So it may be a display of vigor or of body size in, in some way. Paradoxical one, because a, you know, big, a big elk would actually generally, on average, make a lower sound. So, but entirely possible that they're making it to as a sexual display. It also happens, particularly in the, in the mountains, that that high frequency sound carries very well over the low roar of the wind uh, in the trees. And anyone who's been up in the Rockies knows that when the wind gets going through the Ponderosa Pines and then higher elevation in the spruce and fir can really raise a, an extreme loud, but low frequency sound. And so a lot of the animals that live in that environment make songs that are higher pitched than that low frequency sound. The other example, great example that I love hearing in, in the Rockies are the red crossbill birds that are these crazy birds that, that they literally, they're called crossbills because their beaks are crossed at the front, like a, like a wrench with that's kind of gone askew and they use those to pop open pine cones and spruce cones and, and feed on the seeds inside. They make this beautiful warbling song often in the um, late winter, early spring when there's still snow on the ground and, and there's still a lot of wind and it carries right over the top of that mire of, of low frequency sound. It's really an amazing thing to hear that. And that's a higher song, higher pitched song that we would expect to make them to make based on their body size. So th those are two examples of a more general theme in, in sonic communication, which is the voice of most singing animals is adapted to their home environment. So if you go to the, the seashore where there's lots of waves crashing and making all kinds of sounds, the shorebirds and the, and the gulls there make very loud, piercing, high-pitched calls so they can carry their voices across that. The same with birds that breed along rushing mountain streams, any other kind of noisy places. Birds that breed in dense forest make slow, whistled songs that can travel through the, the, the degradation of the, the forest. A dense forest tends to smear the sound and because every leaf is a little sound reflector. 
So very complicated sound would, would get completely erased and messed up. So what do forest nesting birds do? They have a nice, slow, melodious song, whereas birds out in the prairie, boom, they're singing super high pitch, up and down, up and down. It's almost like watching the end of a rapier in a, in a, um, like a, a dueling contest, you know, when people are waving their swords around. Uh, so we hear in the voices of the red crossbills and the forest nesting birds the imprint of their habitat. The mountain quite literally lives inside the forest of the bird. That's so beautifully put. You know, you've, you've mentioned that there are many sounds and sound frequencies that we humans don't pick up and that there's a, a good number of species out there who won't really pick up our human voices in the, in the range of our uh, frequencies. Mm -hmm. Do you have a, do you have a sense for any particular creatures out there who have an exceptionally broad range of ability to, to hear and discern? Um, yes, bats are the, are the absolute champions because they use super high frequency sounds for echolocation. And those high, the crazy thing about really high frequency sounds is that they degrade really quickly in the air. So bats, when they're shooting out, these are sounds that are, let's say, humans at best can hear up to 20 uh, kilohertz, so 20,000 hertz. I can't, I can't hear above eight at best, right? Uh, and, and that's true for, for most older people. Bats are hearing well over 100 kilohertz. My cat is hearing 50, 60 kilohertz, but bats are like way up there. So they have to blast out that echolocating sound so loud that it would deafen them if they, they, if, if, they, if they actually heard it. So what they do is they disconnect their ear bones, the little inner ear bones. When they blast out that sound, they disconnect them. And when the sound bounces back, they reconnect those bones. Crazy. Bats are just crazy in terms of how they... Uh, how their bodies have adapted to this, this echolocating life where they're, they're using sound as the same way that we would use a searchlight beam uh, to see things in the dark. But, you know, cats and dogs, you know, everyday companions for many of us have extraordinary range of, of hearing. They hear down pretty much to the frequencies, the low frequencies that we can hear, but then they hear much higher. And particularly for cats, they hear very high and that probably helped them when they were out hunting little birds and insects and mammals, because a lot of the, the sounds that the prey make in the vegetation are very high-pitched rustling sounds. So if you've got an ear that can pick up those high-frequency sounds, you're probably going to be a better hunter. Same thing, of course, with the mice and the rats that are trying to avoid getting eaten by, by you know, they want to hear one another as well. And... This, to me, this, this is the amazing example of the limitations of a scientific approach to life. And that is, we now know that mice and rats are singing to each other. And there have been probably hundreds of millions of mice and rats kept in laboratories around the world for medical research. And yet, until very recently, nobody thought to put a microphone that was sensitive in the super high frequencies that we can't hear. People thought, well, they're just silent. And sometimes they make little squeaky sounds that we can hear. If you record them, they make this incredible, they have this incredible language of, of full of subtleties 
of communicating one to another, but it's all above what we can hear. So there's an acoustic realm in there, even in very common animals like rats and mice and cats and dogs that, that we just have not yet plugged into. Uh, and, and our technology can help us expand our imagination into those realms. But first, we need to open the imagination to say, hey, I wonder if that rat is singing to the other rat. Wow. I, I can just imagine. I remember hearing years ago at the campus of the University of Colorado here in, in Boulder that uh, we had more mice and rats on campus in terms of population numbers than we had humans uh, because of all the research going on in the labs or whatever. And uh, it's, it's just wild to think that there's these creatures in captivity and in the wild who are communicating so very much uh, in, in ways we are absolutely oblivious to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and of course, we are quite good at being oblivious, even in the range that we can hear. Right? Mm -hmm. So one of my goals as a teacher, and I think one of the more important things, that, if I do anything important as a teacher, other than keep people off the streets, uh, is, um, is introduce people to the sounds of birds and trees in our local environment. I really think every graduate of elementary school, let alone college, should be able to pick out the sounds, the voices of a few common birds and insects and trees of their home environment. Because it, it means that you can never again walk across town and not be tuned in to the rhythms and the vibe of what's happening in the modern human world. And you can do it while you're just walking and looking at other things, you're just hearing the voices of other beings. Uh, so, but of course, our formal education program values things that can be tested universally on standardized tests. And the idea that students in Colorado should learn or could learn the voices of Colorado birds, but those in, in New Orleans or in New York uh, should be learning different things. That's just alien to the, to the kind of universalizing homogenous view of education that, 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 uh, that is so dominant still now. And I'm all for universals and generality. It's great that people learn about, you know, that some of the laws of physics and the, and the, there really aren't any laws of biology because life keeps breaking the rules, but the sort of the suggestions and the rules and the patterns of biology, it's, it's great to learn how those apply across the world, but it's also good to have some particular local knowledge because of course, our lives are lived entirely in local contexts. And even though we're drawing resources from around the world, we are embodied in particular places and times. And it's good to, to connect to those stories as, as sources of joy, as well as it's like, whoa, something's a little broken here and I, I need to, to figure out what I can do to fix it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, that ecological knowledge is so imperative. And, and one of the themes we hear from many of our indigenous elders, friends, colleagues, wisdom keepers, is that the the depth and breadth of local and regional ecological knowledge that is maintained through those cultural traditions um, is, is, is an essential, a vital uh, set of resources, if we want to call it that. I, I'm not, it's, it's really cultural treasures mm -hmm. that I think are, are so very important, especially right now as we're seeing the need for the regenerative, restorative uh, efforts all around the planet. And uh, yeah, for the most part, it seems many, much of the sort of mainstream industrialized 
uh, culture has really lost touch with a lot of that. And, and there are some exceptions, of course, but by and large, it seems that a lot of us are living completely disconnected from these these rhythms like you're speaking about the the deep cold nights or lunar rhythms or other you know celestial and seasonal rhythms and uh songs and rhythms i, I you're, you're making me think of my grandfather uh bless his heart and memory and and i remember sitting with him when i was a little boy and he would uh, communicate with the robins like this and 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 when he would hear certain songs from them, he would say things like, "Oh, it's going to rain soon," or mm-hmm. uh, you know, he he was really tuned into what they were saying. And uh, mm-hmm. so it's not that it's uh, got to be lost to all of us forever. These are things we can pick back up, I think, relatively easily by slowing down and paying attention, as you suggest. And and yes, and listening to one another, finding teachers and guides from as you mentioned, indigenous communities in the US and, and around the world have kept a lot of that knowledge. Others have discovered it in, in other ways. And the transgenerational teaching is really important. And, and I think it goes multiple directions. The traditional way, of course, is that the elders are teaching younger people who are coming up. And my uh, grandparents taught me things about uh, getting food from the, from the, you know, how do you gr- work with seeds and how do you work with uh, vegetable plants to, to feed yourself? And also what did they remember from their younger days about the voices of birds that we don't hear anymore. And so I, I, in a way they transmitted the memory of the 1930s into my mind, even though I wasn't born to well after that, uh, because they told me those stories and those stories stick with me because they came from within family for people who whom I loved them and respected. But also we need to remember the, the, the cross-generational, particularly those of us in, in roles as teachers, to listen to what young people are telling us about the nature of the crises that they are experiencing or what they have learned about what the birds and the mushrooms and the uh, trees and the forests and their living rivers are, are telling us. Uh, so this this cross-generational connection and listening, I think is, of course, takes, uh, can be formalized in, in education, but needs to expand well beyond that and flow both ways. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that completely. I want to pick that thread up from much earlier in our conversation about the microorganisms and uh, mm-hmm. joking about uh, something like who's in charge here, really. Um, you, you mentioned in one of the chapters that uh, the uh, m- certain microorganisms had their growth rates surge when loudspeakers were played to them, uh-huh. um, uh, basically uh, projecting sound from their own growth patterns in other situations. Is that is that the right way to describe that? Yeah. Yeah. So all bacteria. Well, I shouldn't say all because we, we've only studied a handful of them, but. We know that bacteria make little sounds uh, probably because the bacteria, as, as they're living out their lives, the, the surface of their cell is, is moving because they've got all this inner dance of molecules going on and, and so on. So they're vibrating, they're pulsing, they're flexing, and that pushes sound out into the world around them. 
as far as we know, they're not using those sounds to communicate, like to sing or to convince other bacteria to do things. But honestly, we're, it's pretty early days because almost you can count on one, maybe the fingers of two hands, a number of papers that have actually examined this because uh, very few people have studied sound in microbial communities. Um, so there's, there's no current evidence of communicative sounds, but we do know that, as you said, they are sensitive to the sounds that they themselves make and are stimulated by it, at least in some species. You play those sounds back to them and they seem to respond positively. Um, same is true for single-celled organisms, bigger ones like amoeba and, and ciliates. They, they make little uh, sounds and they seem to be sensitive to them. But what all that means in terms of communicative networks, we don't know. I should say, um, as a stimulus to imagination, perhaps, and a caveat, is that sound at that tiny microbial scale is really different than sound as we experience it. Because, they are so, because each one of these cells is so small, it lives in a world where the viscous qualities of water really dominate. So we experience water as very fluid. If we were tiny little microbes because of how the rules of motion and physical laws of the universe work, or at least the universe on this planet, uh, when you get down to those small scales, the water starts acting in a much, much more viscous way. And, and it's almost like swimming in molasses. And so sound waves would then be experienced not so much as vibrations in, in air or even fluid, but as little pulses of motion in that flexible fluid. So it's kind of like, um, I mean, it could be a pleasing thing, right? To be immersed in this nice warm bath of fluid with these pulsing kind of sounds around. I mean, already I can feel my shoulders kind of loosening up <laughs> as I think about that. Uh, so maybe, you know, I could come back as, a, as an E. coli uh, and experience that for a bit. But yes, the microbial world has sounds within it. And there are a few papers that suggest that these micro the microbes are not insensitive to, to those sounds. You know, this is making me think also about the, the whole neurology of uh, what's going on with, with creatures who have neurosystems. And my daughter actually uh, did her uh, undergrad degree in neuroscience and is in med school now and ha has done work with a group of doctors who apparently have found certain frequencies of sound that can be uh, projected locally around the brain and demonstrably uh, accelerate and improve things like language acquisition when somebody's learning a new language. And it seems to me, I know there are some famous sayings from some very interesting characters like uh, 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 Edgar Cayce, who, who said a century ago that the medicine of the future will be sound. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I have this sense that we're just on this frontier as a species of, of discovering kind of a vast new set of potentials when working with sound and, and understanding and experiencing sound and you, you kind of you kind of get at some of the uh mysterious potency of sound when you're talking about human music mm -hmm. and also when you're talking about kind of this wild thing going on with waves larger than galaxies and ancient or you know primordial sounds still somehow resonating inside of our bodies producing thoughts and i don't know i mean it's almost like you're verging on the the esoteric or the mystical here with with some of this which i love uh and 
I'm very interested to hear from you about your thoughts when it comes to what we might do with sound going forward and, and what is going on in this, this human realm of music making and yeah. what's going on in like this interaction between matter and sound and creation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, that's, that's a big question, <laughs> so, um, but a, an excellent one. And um, I think first we should sort of just start with what sound is. So a sound and you know, acousticians and physicists have different definitions, but essentially sound are pressure waves, compression waves flowing through matter. So my vocal folds are trembling as I speak and then make little waves, compression waves in the air that are now transmitted to a microphone and that comes through the wires and the <laughs> ethernet and so on to, to you, which makes other little waves that eventually wind up in your ear. And those waves happen, as we discussed, in, in solid matter, like in the trunks and twigs of trees and in water. There were also waves present before in the early universe before there were even any atoms. When the universe was like compressed down so small, it was so hot that all you had was protons and photons and electrons in this essentially like a really hot kind of plasma or lava. And there were sound waves flowing through that through irregularities in, in the plasma. So, and that was, as, as far as we know, some of the earliest sound in the whole universe. As the universe expanded, that plasma cooled down and atoms formed, but the remnants of those waves are still with us in the cosmic microwave background, excuse me, cosmic uh, background radiation of, of the universe, which uh, is in, in, in the microwave part of the spectrum. Uh, we, we can't perceive it except by putting satellites out into outer space. And, you know, and, and there's so much radiation uh, distracting instruments here on Earth that you can't pick it up. So we launch satellites and you can pick up. And what do you hear? You hear these waves flowing through this background radiation. And also in the spacing of the stars, the galaxies, in, in, uh, when people go and, and astronomers measure them, uh, from instruments in the, in the desert southwest in, in the U.S. These incredibly sophisticated, huge uh, telescopes mapping the position of, of, of galaxies in the sky. And it turns out these galaxies are spaced about 500 million light years apart on average. Of course, there's a lot of variation. Not 400, not 600, 500. And that is the spacing of the peaks of these early sound waves that got pressed into the matter of the early universe. So, yeah, I mean, it sounds mystical, but it's also just straight up physics and astronomy. Uh, and, and of course, that's what physics and ecology do when you listen carefully enough. They take us back to some of the same questions that our culture has, has labeled as, as mystical. And there are mystical approaches into that, personal revelation and so on, that then interact with uh, the, the external processes of science. So, you know, mysticism and physics and ecology, it's all like wrapped up together. And even more so at the subatomic level, an area that I don't pretend to understand except to be amazed and, and um, inspired by what I hear from that. And so the sound was present in the early universe. Sound is present when we look at the night sky and see the stars. And sound is also present as a, as a powerful force in our, in our everyday. Of course, 
through human language and human music. We're connecting one person to another. And through that connection comes possibility and creativity. The same as those early sound waves of the universe created some of the patterns in the stars and the, the background radiation of the universe. It was a generative force sound back then. Sound is a generative force now. And, and, and th this is perhaps just my bias, but I think music and particularly instrumental music does that in, a, in an especially powerful way because we unite our bodies, the human body, the human breath, human fingertips, with the bodies of other creatures like bone and ivory and wood and then materials from, from the earth like metal ores. And we create this crazy chimeric union, the union of more than one body into one to produce sound. And so when we hear a violin play, for example, we're hearing, of course, the artistry of human musician and composer, but we're also hearing horsehair and spruce wood and maple wood. So we're hearing animal lives, our cousins, our other mammals, and we're hearing the voice of a forest emerging from that violin. And from many violins that were built in the 18th and 19th century, we're hearing forest wood that grew before we started drilling for oil. So we're hearing a the voice of the pre-industrial earth emerging from an orchestra stage or from a, a bluegrass fiddler's uh, skill. Even when you plug in an electric keyboard, what are you doing? You're using plastic keys, which are made from oil, which of course is just ancient algae fueled by coal or natural gas or hydropower or solar panels, whatever it is, wherever you get your power from, you're also connecting to the ecology of the world. So music is a deeply ecological experience. And now when I go hear live music, live music especially, I'm, I'm, I'm in the music for what it is as a human experience, but I'm also transported out into the world beyond the human. And I'm imagining what it would have been like for the first instrument makers. And one really moving experience for me was to visit the caves in southern, what is now southern Germany. But back in the Ice Age, people carved what are now the first known musical instruments. This is 40,000 years ago. People living in these Ice Age caves took mammoth ivory, took the wings of bone, bird bones, bird bone wings, excuse me, <laughs> hollowed them out and made flutes. And so the breath of the hunter flowed through part of the body of the prey. And of course, the breath is understood in, in most religious traditions as an extremely sacred, powerful thing. It's what gives us life. That breath flows through the body of another being and then beauty emerges from that, a beauty that connects one person to another. So that was, some, that was some powerful experience then to be the first humans to hear that music. And it's a powerful experience that we can have to this day by just going to listen to someone play a flute or play, play their violin. We are united, but not alone. We're united through these other species. And I think that's really important in that we... We live in houses that are made from wood and other materials. We read books that are printed on trees. So trees and other beings are necessary for human interconnection. I think there's, there's a sort of deep lesson in that about interbeing, about uh, ecological connectiveness and, and interdependence. 
Absolutely beautiful. I'm madly scribbling a couple of notes here for the show notes. And let me uh, take the opportunity, David, to remind our audience, this is the Why on Earth Community podcast. I'm your host, Aaron William Perry. Today, we're visiting again for a second time with David George Haskell, uh, this time talking about his latest book, Sounds Wild and Broken, Sonic Marvels, Evolution's Creativity, and the Crisis of Sensory Extinction. You can uh, get more information about David's work and his books at dghaskell.com, and that's Haskell with two L's at the end there. And uh, want to also be sure to thank the Wild on Earth community supporters and our sponsors and partners, including Waylay Waters, waylaywaters.com, Soilworks, that's soilworks.com, and our friends at Purium, the organic superfood company. We've got a really special program with them uh, in which you can get a $50 or greater discount on your first order and 20% of your all your orders uh, come back to support the Why on Earth community's work. You can go to whyonearth.org. Uh, slash Purium uh, to take advantage of that opportunity and want to also give a special shout out to our monthly supporters. We've got friends, colleagues, and ambassadors supporting uh, on a monthly basis at all kinds of different levels from a dollar all the way to over a thousand dollars. And if you'd like to join, you can go to whyonearth.org and find the uh, donator support page and set up uh, for a monthly uh, donation there. And if, if you choose to do a $33 or greater level, we'd be happy to send you some of the Waylay Waters hemp infused, regeneratively and biodynamically grown uh, hemp infused aromatherapy soaking salts. And you did hear David uh, talking about coming back as an E. coli to soak in that warm bath. We can get some farm to tub soaking experiences right now in our human form with the Waylay Waters uh products which are amazing and david i this we've covered a lot of territory and you've got me right now thinking about some of my other favorite authors and books like joachim ernst berend who wrote this wonderful book called nada brahma the world of sound back in the 50s and he wrote another one called the third ear kind of picking up on this mystical tradition of the third eye and then of course Friedrich Capra with his Tao of Physics uh, really dove deeply I think into some of the spiritual and maybe esoteric traditions how that was relating to insights coming out of physics and later his his book uh, Web of Life on the e Ecology um, the, these have woven together so many I think important themes for us and with your work you're taking a lot of this to an even higher and deeper and more nuanced uh, level instead of experiences from the city in Paris to the wilderness in a lot of different localities that you've had these experiences. And I want to ask you, I'm really curious when you're thinking about the future and you're thinking about where we're headed and you're thinking about what might be needed. If you could wave your magic wand, you know, maybe it's made of bone or wood or whatever. If you could wave your magic wand and help us uh, fix and heal some of what's broken right now on the planet. What would you, what would you love to see happen? You know, in whatever time frame, a year, 10 years, 20, 30, right, whatever, right. what would you love to see happen when it comes to sound and our mm -hmm. connection with sound and that interdependence that you're speaking of in yes, that yes. E ecological interbeing? 
Well, if I can use both ends of the wand, <laughs> I will have a couple of wishes. And one is we've talked on already, and that is for uh, practices of listening and embodied attention being more deeply woven into how we educate ourselves and whether it's young people, old people. Uh, I, I do think re-embodying, remembering that we're not just brains floating in jars connected to the computer, uh, that we live here in, in bodies in a magnificent and yet threatened uh, world. So if kids could, could learn songs of birds and learn the smells of trees and the taste of water in their local environments, we'd go along. And that would be sort of a, a radical, literally back to the roots way of not teaching particular lessons about particular, um, you know, here's the answer to this particular environmental question, but giving people the resources they need to, to be good neighbors and kin. And the other um, is the tropical forests. I think the tropical forests right now are, are in deep crisis. Uh, some of the silencing of the world's forests, of course, there are problems in, in many different places forest fires and uh, invasive diseases, particularly affecting in North America. But the tropical forests host so much biodiversity, so important for human rights, for the indigenous cultures that live in those forests, as well as for the ecology of the planet and are still being cut and degraded at, at uh, very high rates. So of course, tropical forest conservation and indigenous land rights in tropical forests is a very large and complex issue. Uh, but, but I think that is an area that I'm, I'm glad to see get, get more attention. And it's something I've tried to do in a couple of my books is lift up some of those stories. In North America, we use an awful lot of tropical wood with, and we use gasoline and other things that are coming dug out of the um, drilled in many tropical areas. And yet our imaginations are often disconnected from, from tropical forests. So I, I think taking responsibility for those actions, uh, standing in solidarity with and helping people who are uh, working to protect their lands in the tropics is, is, is very high on my list. Yeah, thank you for, for sharing that with us. And um, before we sign off, I wanna mention and, and tease for our audience that uh, we're gonna, after concluding the podcast episode, have a few minutes of our behind the scenes conversation, David, to pick up on a few of these extra themes together that is uh, made available for our ambassadors and our ambassador network. You have to get the special access code uh, to get these behind the scenes segments. And uh, you can go to whyonearth.org to learn more about becoming an ambassador if you're interested, uh, networking with a community all around the world, working on these ecological, regenerative, uh, social enterprise, healing, uh, projects together and um so we'll do that in a few minutes david but uh, yeah before we before we sign off on the podcast episode i just i want to open the floor up to you if there's anything else you'd like to say speak to mention uh that we didn't get a chance to cover yet the floor is yours my friend well thank you i, mean, I guess i'd close with an invitation uh and that is for for listeners to pick a spot i mean it might be on the balcony outside your apartment or a street corner or a city park or, or, or somewhere out uh, further away from human habitation. And just return again and again over the coming weeks and months, for even for a very short period, like one minute, and just pour your attention into your ears 
and let the soundscape come into your consciousness. So in other words, this is a, a listening meditation, but repeat it again and again at the same place and see what kinds of sounds you hear at first. And then what sound was hidden behind the one that you didn't quite notice at first? What sound is off on the horizon? What shapes and textures do they have? And through this process of repeated uh, listening at that place, in, in, in essence, you're befriending it. Because how do we make friends in the human context? We listen to other people. Of course, we talk a little bit ourselves. In this practice, we're doing mostly listening. I mean, you can talk at your spot as well if, if you want. Say hi. Uh, so the invitation is to pick a place and do some acoustic meditations and see where that leads you, what, what questions it, it it might stimulate curiosity. It might suggest things about your work or, or your life, or it might just be an experience of being in the moment, and then you can move on to other things. Absolutely beautiful. What a joy uh, to visit with you, David. It's uh, a real pleasure, as always. And uh, thanks Thank again you, for sharing on it. Book, book with us, Sounds Wild and Broken. And uh, thanks for being on the podcast again. Thank you. Such a great pleasure and an honor. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you, David. Bye-bye. The Why on Earth Community Stewardship and Sustainability podcast series is hosted by Aaron William Perry, author, thought leader, and executive consultant. The podcast and video recordings are made possible by the generous support of people like you. To sign up as a daily, weekly, or monthly supporter, please visit whyonearth.org support. Support packages start at just $1 per month. The podcast series is also sponsored by several corporate and organization sponsors. You can get discounts on their products and services using the code WHYONEARTH, all one word with a Y. These sponsors are listed on the whyonearth.org backslash support page. If you found this particular podcast episode especially insightful, informative, or inspiring, please pass it on and share it with a friend whom you think will also enjoy it. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for your support. And thank you for being a part of the Why on Earth community.